the two greatest words that every hockey fan wants to hear game seven what can be better than that well game seven of the stanley cup finals how did we get here and who has got the edge heading into wednesday's finale at td garden plus the sabers aim to get a step closer to that winning vision by re-signing a key member of their offense while the flyers and sends both make noise for different reasons episode 175 of the lace my podcast starts right now It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Dubuff. Before we go any further, we're going to delve into the Hockey Hall of Fame book of trivia. Brett, are you ready for this week's question? Yes. All right, question 61. Just scrolling to it. (laughs) Starting a new page. Here we go. Boston Great Dick Clapper. Ha, funny. Bruins trivia. Is yeah, credited fitting. with what Hall of Fame first at his 1947 induction? A. He was the first living honoree. Well, that's the B. He was the first non-North American inductee. C. He was the first to wait 20 years for his Hall membership. Or D. He was the first NHLer enshrined in the Hall of Fame. I seem to remember that he was—he's always been like the guy I talked about during Hall of Fame. Con- conversations um so i'm gonna say the the third one or the he had to wait 20 years to get in first player to wait 20 years well the actual answer is he was the first living honoree oh wow yeah yeah so um a little bit of a backstory to this so uh, dick clapper's title as the first active hall of famer came by circumstance since all the original inductees in 45 uh including pioneers such as frank mcgee eddie gerard and odd stewart were elected post thomas lee so the next induction in 47 added seven living players and clapper was among those so okay yeah so the first living honoree wow what a depressing title to have yeah i know (laughs) yikes all right is he dead now he might be yeah probably (laughs) that was a while ago yeah um okay so that's probably how i heard his name then interesting okay anyways that's what these trivias do anytime it's like things that i like have heard in passing and then it's like, oh, okay, that's an interesting tidbit. Yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah, so there's been three games since uh, since we last recorded um, in the Stanley Cup Finals. I think we're going to do the same stuff that we did the last time. Um, and we'll talk, I mean, we have circled down a little bit of different events that happen in each of these games as well while we do it, but... Um, especially for most, Game most 5. Most of those events happened in Game 5. That was the real interesting one. That's what I was going to say in Game 5. But it would be remiss if we didn't talk about Game 4 and Game 6, of course. Um, also, uh, we should say that this was um, in, after Game 3. Craig Berube mentioned how... Because uh, this is going to foreshadow the rest of the series... 
or at least game five because um um what was I gonna say the um because Craig Berube had these comments out in public and he said that he was complaining about the refs and he said that the um that the Blues are the least penalized team in the league and it's not a surprise that they're not getting the calls which by the way <laughs> someone checked and the Blues aren't the least penalized team in the league they weren't um so Perube was just making it up and he just was um he was just saying something but um just by doing that it kind of like I know the refs are like not gonna publicly say that like they listened to what Craig Berube was saying, but there was just you know you know that like the refs understood that like he felt um, that like there's more scrutiny on the refs, um, and they felt like okay if there's any sense of favoring the Blues or not favoring the Blues we're gonna you know we might be in trouble. I'm sure the refs wouldn't say that publicly. I'm not saying that they would. This is a big conspiracy theory here, but um, I just think there was like Berube was playing some mind games there. Um, anyway, yeah, what's, what's interesting about what he said though is the Bruins got four goals on four power play shots on four power play chances. The Blues actually had five power play chances in that game, so they actually had more power plays than the Bruins did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a weird, uh, yeah, no, that is a good point. I haven't looked at game three, but yeah. Now, now if, if the argument was the, the quality of the penalties, like I didn't like the quality of the penalties that were called on our guys, you know, that's one thing. But, to, to, but if he's making the argument that we're not getting most of the calls, well, you got one more call than the Bruins. You had one more power play than them. Yeah, I'm looking here. The, the Blues, I mean, the Blues and the Bruins got a lot of penalties in Game 3, but it does seem like the Bruins had more penalties called on them than the Blues did. Um, especially late. But, like, that game didn't even end up mattering because it was 7-2 at that point. In the, like, in the third period, Bruins had, like, four straight penalties called on them. Um, and... Um, I mean, it didn't end up mattering because they won 7-2. to two. But yeah, no, you're right. It's not like there is any real truth to it. But anyways, it, it made it... I felt like it made it so that the refs were like, hey, um, they're, you know, we should be careful with this stuff. Um, although I'd, I'll, I'll admit, I don't know if they would ever publicly say something like that. Did they get them off the screen or something? Um, anyways, the, um, so game four, um, it wasn't really that exciting other than Zidane Chara. Um, there, well, speaking of penalties, there was a, um, in the second period, late in the second, or in the middle of the second period, um, Connor Clifton, um, like, touches basically Tarasenko's head with his stick and Tarasenko f dives harder than he's ever dived before, um, and but they call it. Um, that was ridiculous, but it was overshadowed by the fact that Zdeno Chara gets hit in the face with a puck. Um, I think it was, um, was it Bo Meester? I believe it was a shot from Braden Shen. It rode up Chara's oh, stick and Shen. then hit him in the face. Braden Shen. Um, 
and uh, he uh, had to get stitches. He was bleeding everywhere. This was in the second period as well. Um, and um, and then he comes back in the third period, but he has a cage on. He's like visibly not talking, and um, he uh, you know he's just on the bench the entire third period. I don't know what it was like in Canada, but on the U.S. they could not stop showing it or showing Chara on the bench, and they could not stop talking about how if what Chara what's happened to Chara if he's going to play or not. But uh, it turned out that he um, he had a he broke his jaw, um, and uh, he was on the bench just to support his teammate, which is. Which is a pretty cool thing. He was just, you know, I guess he could have just stayed out um, and and try to get better, but like no one would have yeah, blamed in, him. In order to do that, he yeah. had to wear that face shield. That's the only way he could actually sit on the bench. Like he wasn't medically clear to right. play. They weren't sure if he was going to play Game Five. Right. And uh, but he turns out that he he just like uh, he had to wear this face shield just so that he could. Um, you know, that he could even sit on the bench. Uh, but that's why, like, the announcers were, I guess, going crazy because they didn't know if Char was going to play or not. Um, and it turns out that he, um, you know, he didn't. But um, but anyways, that's what they all talked about. Um, I feel it would be remiss to not mention that Ryan O'Reilly got a goal, uh, the game-winning goal here. It was a nice play, so there's there wasn't any complaints there um, in, in this game. Other than that Tarasenko dive, um, but well, <laughs> see, I, I was taking a look at the replay, and it it looked like Marshawn was kind of looked like he was aiming. It wasn't Marshawn; it was Clifton. Was it? Well, because I remember Marshawn. I I think it was Marshawn was trying to make a play on Tarasenko. Tarasenko chipped the puck away, and then Marshawn goes for what looks like Tarasenko's knees. Like he kind of leans into Tarasenko's knees a little bit. It was and then not Tarasenko Marshawn. Goes down. It was not Marshall. I believe. I believe that that play. I believe that play was a game four, game five, because there there was one Tarasenko play where it looked like okay. yeah, maybe he kind of sold it, but he, it, like I don't know what what he could have done really, because it looked like Marshall was going for the knees a little bit. Uh, that is not the play I'm talking about. Okay, maybe that was in game five, but in in, in any event, there was another play where Tarasenko went down. Where I thought that was the play you were talking about, and I'm thinking, well, I don't think you really dove on that. And if if he if you are gonna call him, okay, it may that, not be I, dive. I, I it was so more sure. embellishment. Like it, like I'm looking at it now. I I wonder if there's a way I can send this to you because there, because we're definitely we're talking about the different things. Okay, so. okay. Uh, okay I'll, I'll take I'll take your I'll take your word on that. Uh, okay. That, I, I I I do agree. Needless to say that. The officials have called a lot of different things where we don't know what's going to be called and what isn't. Yeah. Like, it's just been so it, – it's just been – it's been like a coin toss every game. Like, heads or tails, what's going to get called, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'll am send you the link here. I don't, I don't know if you'll ever okay. see it. I know we're recording in the middle of this. But um, <laughs> the uh, – I mean, I guess it's – just looking at this again, it's less – of a it's less of a dive and more of an embellishment like he like he purposely tries to get a shoulder on just so he can get a call 
Um, it it just it didn't it didn't look right basically. But yeah, it was okay. in game three. It was Marshawn was not involved in this play. Oh, uh, okay. Um, but yeah. Uh, anyways, but like I felt like that's kind of set the tone. I think there was another time where like Bennington tr- tr- like dived a bit, but like the rest didn't call it. Well, what um, happened yeah. was Marshawn was going around his stick blade, I guess, caught yeah. in Bennington's pad, and then oh, that's what you were talking about. That that they would call that, and Marshawn immediately after when he was skating, when he was skating the other way around the corner, he was just like, "You got to be kidding me, right?" Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was definitely a bit of a sell job on Bennington. I will yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. That was that was the other one that I forgot about. But okay, so you were talking about that one. I was talking about another one, which was Tarasenko. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure what I was talking about was Tarasenko okay. or Marshawn. It happened in Game Five because I remember. Yeah, that was early on. Game. Yeah. If you're going to suspend Barbashev, how about suspending Marshawn for this play on Tarasenko? So I think that happened in Game Five when everything else happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's okay. right. My mistake. I got my, I got my signals crossed there. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, but then, uh, anyways, that that's a good lead-in for Game Five because there were a couple of sell jobs from the Blues, uh, both from Tarasenko and Bennington. One that which was called, the other one was not called from Bennington, but. Um, yeah, so anyways, that leads into Game 5, where there were so many non-calls against the Bruins. You did mention the one on Marshawn, on Bennington, but um, that seems like it's like there were three other non-calls on the Bruins that uh, seem ridiculous uh, to, to me. Um, but um, So let's start with, well, first off, Chara actually is playing... Um, in game five, he, um, he gets a, uh, he has this brace on the, the Bruins are starting a seven D defenseman instead of six. Um, and they're just using a Rover, uh, for forwards because just in case that Chara couldn't go, um, they also, you know, they haven't had Grizzly this entire time. Kevin Miller's also been gone too. Uh, so yeah, so def- they've been depleted defensively for the past couple of games now, um, but so that's why they went seven, which was a good idea. Um, it didn't work, um, though. Um, and then uh, let's see here. Okay, so let's start with there's one on uh, yo. Let's start with the first one, which was uh, yo Marcus Johansson goes um like this is in the first period Johansson I uh, has the puck and then Barbashev hits him in the head um this was not called um but the NHL looked at this one and Barbashev gets a suspended one game this one was pretty bad but um like the other ones it wasn't as it didn't seem as egregious as the other ones I don't know Although having said that, I don't know why, like what Johansson couldn't have done there, um, could have done there, but it was it was seemed very um, it seemed very obvious that he, um, you know, that should have been called. Um, so there was an annoyance on that one. Um, yeah, like like that that one, like he was in the middle of taking a shot on goal, like his eyes are focused directly at the net, focused on Bennington. And Barbashev is not sticking on his elbow or intending to make contact with the head or anything like that. But either way, 
his shoulder catches Johansson's head. Yeah. We said it many times on this show already. Player safety is cracking down when it comes to headshots, purely if contact is made with the head or not. And Johansson isn't changing his body position because he's in the middle of taking a shot. He obviously can't change his head because he's focused at the net. He can't avoid this play, so it's up to Barbashev to change his course properly. He doesn't do enough of that. I think one game was justified on this play, but again, the fact this wasn't even called a penalty is scary. Like, this yeah. is a penalty that has to be called in real time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, no, you're right. That that should have been called real time. I mean, all of these should have been called real time. Um <laughs> Zach, this one was the most egregious one that, like, I can't even believe. Like, I thought, like, I so I I watched I watched this game with the mute on, uh. So sometimes I'm like I get the calls wrong. So when as soon as I saw this Krug on Sanford play, I thought this was gonna be a five minute play. So I was like celebrating. I was like, yes, we finally got a five minute here. And then it turns out that they didn't even call it. Um, Sanford, uh, hits Krug, um, in the head. It was like a shoulder. Uh, I mean, just because Sanford is like so much bigger than Krug. I think that's, that's really why, but like, like, uh, Sam, like Krug, like it was definitely intentional. This was like probably one of the most hit, like dirtiest things I've ever seen on, on, at least in this playoffs. Luckily, Krug is okay, but it was it was very dirty from uh, Zach Sanford. Um, by the way, he's from uh, Salem, Massachusetts, which I found out. Yeah, um, he's got Boston ties. Yeah, um, his like so, his so, mom yeah, grew up a Bruins fan or something like that. But anyways, it was this one was like even more crazy because this should have been like a game game misconduct from Sanford, but um, but it wasn't. Yeah, like like this this is a play where both of these guys are going for a loose puck in yep. the corner and Krug is going for the side swipe boat jet to get it away from Sanford and Zach cuts in front of him, his elbow makes contact with Tori Krug's head. The head, again, primary point of contact. No, no suspension, not even a two minute minor is handed out. Forget five minutes in a game. No penalty whatsoever. And and again, one of those calls that has to be made, like if if you're if you're so anal about getting headshots out, then call penalties on headshots. And these are two headshot penalties against St. Louis that in real time they got away with. Yeah. Um then the next one on this sheet is what I have here is what you've already talked about, but Marshawn gets a slashing call on uh, Bennington where he tries to like he hits Jordan Bennington in the stomach. Um um, it was like, I mean, it was like he pokes him basically. This one was called, um, which mm -hmm. is interesting, but, uh, it, it, I mean, it's like typical Brad Marchand move to, to do that. This one, I was just like, this one's like, whatever. Um, because this one was at least called, but it was a little bit annoying that one. Um, and then, uh, the other one, which was Bozak, um, this was in the third period, um, it's what it's a one-one game here, um, and uh, Bozak. Well, um, it was actually a one-nothing game. Like the game was. Oh still yeah, yeah, that's well right. That's point. right. Yeah, yeah, my bad. It's one-nothing game here, um, and uh, Bozak hits uh, like 
literally trips Achari. Achari has to go to concussion protocol. Even Bozak was going to the bench. It was not called. And then, like, a couple seconds later, the the Blues score from uh, David Perron. Um, well, you, you look at and, the real time. You look yeah. at the play, and Bozak just goes, like, puts his arms up, and he goes, yeah. what? To, like, the rep that's standing right in front of the play. Yeah, that too. And the rep, the rep doesn't have his hand up. He doesn't call yeah. it. It's right in front of him. And, and not only that, Achari, like, was flipped over, too. So yeah. that, <laughs> head over heels, yeah. Yeah. Like, like the back... The back left leg of Achari gets taken out with the right leg of Bozak. You can yeah. say whether or not it was intentional, like a high stick was intentional or not. The fact is, you know, like a high stick, if it makes contact and it draws blood, it's a four minutes. you got to watch your stick. And, and this play, it, it, it may not be intentional, but at the end of the day, Bozak takes Achari out of the play. That's a legit penalty. Happens right in front of the official. No call is made. And then, of course everyone's talking about it because it leads to a crucial part of the game, right? Right, right, of course. Yeah, it was just, um, yeah, it was weird. Um, and then, um, and then, so, I guess I didn't really recap the game, but yeah, so it was, uh, so the Blues score making it 2-0. Uh, pretty soon after, Jake DeBrus scores. Uh, this was also strange, too, because Tori Krug was, uh, had a high sticking. This one would have been called, but then Jake DeBrus scores right after it. Um, but uh, so there, that should have been called even still, I think. I, get, I don't know the rules that much there. Um, but anyways, uh, the Bruins lose here. Uh, the Blues were the better team. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly played out of his mind. Jordan Bennington had like 30, 38 saves. So mm -hmm. kudos to them. I, so before I get into my rant, I want to mention that the Blues deserve to win this game. However, yeah. sorry, yeah. go on. Yeah. Before I go to this rant, you may not have a ton of time. So <laughs> so what what are your thoughts before I go on this rant? So before you go on this rant, you're 100% correct when you say that the the Bruins the Bruins deserved a better fate in this game and and the, and a lot of St. Louis Blues played uh, monster games, but it, it's unfortunate that this non-calling game 5 took away from Jordan Bennington's performance cuz yeah. this is what everyone will be talking about if not for that non-call like yeah. You look at uh, Bennington's stats before Game 5. From Games 1 to 4, his save percentage was 882. Based on what we've seen from Bennington, certainly not to the standards we expect. And even when you take away the skewed stats from that Game 3 where he gets yanked after five goals, uh, the Bruins had averaged 25.5 shots per game, 11.8 uh, uh, shots from the slot against Bennington, 5.8 shots uh, from the inner slot per game. Here are Bennington's Game 5 stats. 39 shots faced, 15 shots from the slot, 7 from the inner slot, stops 38 of 39 in the game, which is a save percentage of 974 for those of you at home doing math. 15 for 15 in shots from the slot, 7 for 7 shots from the inner slot, when compared to league average goaltending, he saved his team over two extra goals against. And this was a one-goal game. Yep. So those two goals against go by him, Bruins win this game. 
Yep. And there were there were several points in this game, the first and the third period in particular, where the Bruins had all the momentum. They were pressing time and time again, and Bennington was the main guy that was holding the fort. But uh, there are also a lot of there are also a lot of other guys on the Blues that went, if they weren't doing something offensively. They were helping out in other ways. You mentioned yeah. Zach Sanford in the questionable hit on Troy. Well, wait, can I get on this he, rant he now? Made a, he made a super nice play to set up Ryan O'Reilly on the game's first goal. Brandon Shen didn't get a shot on goal. He didn't get a point, but he got six hits. Yeah. Ryan O'Reilly had three can blocks I, uh, and three takeaways. It, it was incredible how some of the other Blues were helping out the team, okay. even if it wasn't on the offensive end. Okay, well, I, I, so I was just going to shortly mention how giving credit to the Blues and then go into my rant, but, uh, yeah. like, <laughs> this is, I guess, even further so. The Blues deserve to win this game. Having said all that, this, you know, just, like, like not just one call, like, fine. You, like, I hate blaming the refs for calls. It's kind of like blaming injuries for uh, this far into the playoffs. It's like... It's all, you're all dealing with hypotheticals, but you have, like, there are three non-calls here that should have been called, um, the one on Johansson, the the one on, uh, the one on, uh, Krug, and then the tripping call on, uh, on, uh, Achari, um, and, like, the, the, two of them were headshots, one of them was a tripping call, and like the guy goes to concussion protocol, it's like where is player safety here? That's like three non-calls here. That's just so egregious that it's just like, like, like I wanted to say that like, like Barubi, like I feel like I'm going like insane here, where it's like Craig Barube knew this was going to happen and all that stuff, which we'll get into in a second. But yeah, like just the whole like. And like and and as you mentioned, Bennington was on fire tonight. Um, you know, he had thirty-eight saves, and it's not like the Bruins. Like there was, I don't even remember any like Pasternak, Marchand, or Bergeron really getting any good chances out there. Like they were playing all slow in that game, so it wasn't like the Bruins were playing the best of their abilities. But what hurts me most about this game, and what will like continue to annoy me for the rest probably the rest of my life even if the Bruins win game seven it's it's going to annoy me for for a while is that like it's all like oh it shouldn't be a what-if situation like they should have called uh they should have called a uh charging penalty on Barbershop they should have called a charging penalty on Sanford even a major penalty on on Sanford they should have called a tripping penalty on Bozak and who knows what the score would be, but at least we would know. It's like it's like not proper to like not call those things. Also, like you know, like the rest were looking at these plays. Like like it's like it just seems like a, a stupid excuse to like to like do that. I mean, we've been talking about this the entire playoffs about how like how terrible the refs are. We need to figure out some way to do it. We, we kind of even predicted that this would happen. That there would be one game where, like, uh, a big penalty would affect the game. But it's like, so so I'll give credit to the Blues, like you mentioned. Ryan O'Reilly, David Perron, Braden Shen, uh, Jordan Bennington, of course. 
they all played phenomenal games. I mean, the Blues are a very good team. They just, like, you know, if they win game seven, they deserve it. But, like, at the same time, it's just, it doesn't seem fair that they are, you know, they, it's like the refs are incompetent. Like, if the refs were competent, the Bruins would at least have a chance to, uh, to, uh, tie things up. Because, like, if that tripping penalty was called, that Blues, that second goal would not have been scored. Um, yep. And it would have been one nothing. And, I mean, like, sure, you can't say that Jake DeBrus wouldn't have tied things up and we may have been in overtime at that point. But, like, who knows, really? It's like, that's that's just an unfair thing. We don't, we don't know what, what's going to happen in the power, the power play and, and all that stuff. It's just... It's just ridiculous. It's an, it's an embarrassment to the league, honestly. Um, I mean, like it, it it is it does give things into perspective because I do have um, a Canucks fan um, who uh, an internet fan, and he was like, he was he was telling because he obviously hates the the Bruins um, because of what happened in 2011, but like he was saying how. Uh, like it's like kind of like karma for uh, what happened in the Canucks series because he was laughing so hard about like how the Bruins were not getting any of these calls and he felt like the Canucks were I guess his excuse was that the Canucks are like get injured all the time like got injured and if the the Canucks were healthy the Canucks would have won that series or something which is kind of lame but like <laughs> the so it does give it into perspective that it's like complaining about the refs is kind of like complaining about um, injuries in uh, this far into the series because you're like you know who knows what happened. You sh- the Bruins like, even with this stuff the Bruins should have at least won like scored something here. So it's just I guess it was more frustration. It's probably the most frustrating game I've ever watched really of the Bruins. It's just like. It's just ridiculous. We have put so much, we put so many shots on net. They weren't going in. Some of them were even like, like hitting the posts and stuff. It wasn't like Bennington was phenomenal. I know he was great, um, obviously, but like he had 38 saves. That's not like luck, really. Mm-hmm. But like you know, a lot of those plays, like you know, I feel like like an, we we were getting to him. It's just uh, it was just frustrating, honestly. So rant over. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the thing with the Bruins, and, and I saw this tweet, and you addressed it to me, and I feel it's both the way both of us feel. Yeah. And, and the tweet goes something to the effect of, did the refs cost the Bruins the game? No. Did they cost the Bruins a fair shot at winning the game? Probably. Yeah. Because, you know what, if, if you get, if, you, if, if all those penalties are called against St. Louis, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about making the right call. Right. And the right calls on a lot of the plays that you mentioned were not made. And you know what? That's that's the Blues' fault. You know, if you take penalties that should be called, and they have to be called, and they should be called, and they and they go on the penalty kill, don't take those penalties. Mm-hmm. And if the Bruins don't score on those power plays and you win the game, then it's the Bruins' fault because they didn't cash in when they yeah. had the chance. But at least, at least they had the chance. You, 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 you know what? If if there are if there's a team that gets nine penalties called against them, and the other team gets two, and every single one of those penalties are fair, 
Yeah. That doesn't say the refs are the, the fix is in. The refs are against us. No. It's because the other team played better than you. Yeah. That's exactly what it means. Yeah. So, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely think the Bruins got stiffed on on a couple of those plays, especially that blatant trip. Like, a trip is a trip. Everyone can say that the that the wrong call was made. The right call was right there, and they didn't make it. And that's one of those things that. That, that's one of those arguments that can be made. Well, video review isn't going to solve everything because that's as clear as day. There's no doubts about it. That's a penalty and it wasn't called. So if you're not going to expand video review, then get better officials on the freaking ice. Like, I, I get that the game is fast, but like when, when that play happens right in front of you and it leads to a goal, the right call's got to be made there. And, and you have every single right to be disappointed i would be pissed if that happened to my team every hockey fan would be pissed if that happened to their team let's yeah. be perfectly honest here and and the and the blues got themselves a break and if they don't win this series i think it's their own fault because they were given a gift on that second goal and that second goal uh could have easily ended the series had the bruins let it affect them and let it affect their play in game six which as we'll explain later they didn't let the play uh, affect their game in game six because we're off to game seven because they played well enough to win that game. So yeah, good on good on Cassidy, good on the Bruins for not letting that define how their season was going to end and just finding another level and getting the result they needed in game six to force a game seven at home. And that's when well we'll get to that. But... really tested is in those big moments. So um, but. Yeah. Before we go to game six, you mentioned that Bruce Cassidy, you, you talk about Barube going off on the officials. Cassidy had some stuff to say about the refs. After yeah, that. yeah. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here. You should, uh, I, I retweeted it, so you should go on my Twitter to find I, I it. I have the Cassidy quotes for this one, yeah. But, um, but yeah, he basically said that, uh, I mean, so you can fill in the blanks for, for whatever I missed, but... Okay. Um, but, because, uh, uh, like, it, it should be said, because he said a lot of stuff. But he said that, uh, basically, he said that this is a black eye for the league and that the narrative on officiating changed after Berube's public comments following Game 3. Now, I watched the press conference um, uh, on through video, and he didn't mention Berube's name, but he did say that, like, the narrative changed when the opposition complained about the officiating so it was it was basically a shot at that he was saying how like um like what i mentioned that achari was like going like was in concussion protocol uh bozak was like motioning to the bench because even he thought it was a penalty um so like it was very much like um yeah i i think that that's pretty much a paraphrase of it but he was he was complaining about the refs um but in response to what Barube was saying and then hey, I love, yeah I love his blunt honesty where he said well the, everyone at the bench was saying you missed an effing call you know yeah like it was, this was a good blend of being blunt being honest and being critical of the officiating and addressing what Barube said without addressing his name but then saying, we flipped the page, we're going to game six, we're doing our best to extend the series. Yep. So I think Cassidy hit all the right notes in that post-game presser. Like, he could not have handled it any better. Yeah, and then Barube was asked about 
Cassidy's yeah, comments. Yeah, just deflecting. Yeah. just like, uh, what are you talking about? Right, and then uh, and then Barube says that he is not his job to judge. Or I, I'm paraphrasing again. I I may be confusing this with Luongo's comments in in 2011, but uh, it's not his job to uh, judge the refs, even though he did um, yeah. like two days, like three days ago. Um, so that that was that was it's very hypocritical of him to say that, but. Um, but whatever, um, yeah. That, that's that. You know what? That 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 alludes to another point. It like, it is absolutely frightening to me if this holds true. If a coach being critical of the officials is enough to sway the direction of an entire series or a single yeah. hockey game, like that's not how it's supposed to be. Right, right. If if, if you deserve to get penalized, you deserve to get penalized. Not. Not the other way around of, all oh, the rest are being unfair to us. We need more calls going our way. Okay, we'll give you more calls going your way. No right, problem. right. That shouldn't like, work. That's, yeah, that's if that's the case. Yeah, if that's the case, then that sets a whole bag of worms where, like, yeah, every coach yeah, is going to start goes complaining. Down the slippery yeah. slope because every other yeah. team is going to see that and just like, hmm. Maybe we can do this. Easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's, that's a, that's a fair point. Like I, I, I'll, I'll admit it's, it's a conspiracy theory. I don't know if it's necessarily true. Um, but I I feel like, yeah, but like it does, it did seem like when you, like you didn't get like, like one non-call, I'll let it go. Two non-calls, it's a little, I'll be on alert three non-calls then you're like something's definitely going on where yeah, you feel like you know in the finals when yeah. everything is magnified when everything is closed this is yeah. a one goal game right right um so and then there's also like you know i also have a blues fan and he was saying how like i wouldn't be saying i wouldn't be complaining about this if it, if the roles were reversed and then he was also mentioning how Marshawn was dirty in the game. And then uh, he was also talking about the Krug charge in game one that wasn't called. And he was saying that like it's karma for that stuff. And I'm just like, I've been consistent throughout this entire time. I, I mean, I, I'd obviously be happy that the Bruins won, but I wouldn't be like, you know, I wouldn't be happy that like, you know, that, that we won that way. Um, and he was, he was, like he felt like we were, I wasn't giving him credit for the Blues winning, and I gave him, I gave Bennington credit, I gave all these guys credit, but it was just, um, so this is the this is the moment where we uh, the Blues fans and the Bruins fans get a little uh, chippy here, um, <laughs> not just the players. Um, well, what, what's also interesting, but before we go on. Nick Kiprios was saying, well, traditionally games five, games six, games seven, the refs tend to call less. Okay. Right. If, you know, if, if it's the 50-50 stuff where more often than not, you know, maybe maybe you call it a penalty, but like, you know, you could you could maybe have the chance to let it slide. If you're, if you're going to let those slide, fine. But when you've got calls like these that are blatantly obvious that they should be called in real time, you've got to call those. Yeah. For sure. Like it's not. It's not like there was any doubt that these were fifty-fifty calls. Like the, like call the obvious things. If yeah. they're that plain and obvious, call them. Yeah, for sure. Um. So it, Yeah, I don't know if there is a conspiracy that like they the refs were like, 
oh well Barubi called out called us out let's let's be let's give them some calls um i don't know if it's that obvious but um there's a lot of there's a lot of instances where it's it's hard to dispute it otherwise but you, yeah and you, and you have a good point like you would like to think that there is um you know this isn't the case that like refs aren't influenced by coaches and their comments but um i mean i think it's kind of hard not to when it's so publicized um in in the media um, if, if I'm going to go on, like, a conspiracy theory, I'd rather the conspiracy theory where the hockey gods look down on St. Louis and say, you know what, you've had 50-plus years of nothing, we'll throw you a bone. Here's yeah. game five, see what you can do with it. That's quite the conspiracy theory. I mean, I, I'd be, I, yeah, that would be, I'm, I mean, like, I, if the Bruins weren't involved, I'd be rooting for the Blues, so, um, <laughs> yeah. so that's the, uh, that's the big thing. Um, game six, uh, quickly here, Brad Marchand's starts things off. This is a power play um, of all things uh, from Pasternak and Krug. Um, and then in the third period, kind of like all hell breaks loose for the Bruins. Uh, Brandon Carlo scores. Car- uh, that was like uh, that was a pretty um, uh, like uh, Bennington should have had that one. Um, yeah, it, like, that, that took it a tips off of his glove. Yeah. Went past him, but yeah, it did, yeah, it didn't look good on him. Andrew Raycroft, by the way, mentioned that like he should have, like Bennington should have had that one, and then he said that I'm the one to talk about that though, because it's Andrew Raycroft. Um, Carlson Kuhlman also scores. Um, he was actually so this time in Game Six, the Bruins uh, put in Carlson Kuhlman instead of the seven, they decided to go back to six defensemen, um, and Carlson Kuhlman's in. Um, and he scores uh, a goal. Um, then Ryan O'Reilly scores. This is his third straight goal in the playoffs, um, or in 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 this series, I should say. So he scored game six, game five, and game four. Um, and then um, so this was, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I felt safe if we had a three goal lead, um, and then um, not a two goal lead. Uh, then Pasternak gets his first even strength goal in these playoffs, um, which is amazing when you think about it, that Brad Marchand, Pasternak, and Bergeron um, have not been perfect um, in these playoffs, and um, they hadn't gotten an even strength point, um, and they finally get it there. And then uh, lastly, of course, Zdeno Chara gets an empty netter. Uh, what a warrior Zdeno Chara is for playing... Uh, with a broken jaw, um, I, I hate when players play injured, as you know, Steve. Um, but I think this is an exception that I'm I'm willing to uh, bend my pet peeve over. <laughs> yeah, like Chara, I like I know he's a freak of nature, yep. but doing this at 42, he must be half cyborg. Yeah, and, and just the way he was, like. He, like the guy could barely talk. He was handing out uh, handwritten responses to the yep. media for some of the questions, and he was mentioning, "I'm not different than any other player on either team." You know, everyone's battling through something at this time of year, and you you don't think about going on the ice and getting hurt. You you just go out there and play. Like that that type of mindset of a guy that will do anything 
he possibly can help his team win and to still be doing it at the age of 42 yep. it just shows a lot of leadership and i think a, a lot of the bruins feed off of that and you talk about leadership and you, you talk about Tukarask and how well he's been in these playoffs and you talk about how the bruins were able to capitalize on the momentum they were being outshot five to one before they get that power play goal for Marshall, they outshoot to the Blues eight to nothing before the Blues get a shot on goal after that power play, and the Blues had like four power plays in the game, and I believe before they started their fourth, I remember on the ticker it said they had eleven power play shots, and just like that's one big ass typo. There's no way that's true. Right. And they had twelve power play shots in the entire game, and a lot of that was because Tuukka Rask was doing whatever he could to keep his team in the game. Um. He stopped 28 of 29 overall, and the one that Ryan O'Reilly scored was almost a save, but his pad was over the line, so they yeah. counted it. So even that goal that counted was almost not even a goal. So Tuka Rask, hats off to Tuka Rask for once again answering the bell when his team needed it. And, of course, like Bennington in Game 5, he did get some help, particularly from uh, Charlie McAvoy, who oh, yeah. also... Uh, heck of a game too yeah um yeah there was a play uh where i thought it, w it went in and i was so confused yeah, as same. to why it went in i'm watching this replay right now um it's like it hits it hits tuka then it hits like the post then it hits uh rask is back and then mcavoy hits it gets in on the action and hits it with his stick um and then all of a sudden like it's a save from Rask, even though like McAvoy and the like, it was pretty much a lot of luck there. But it was, yeah, and, and that's it was a phenomenal game. So yeah. that ties the game if it goes in. Of course, yeah. Um, also, speaking of McAvoy, um, he's he had like a, a press, like he had the conference, and he was saying that um, you know this is like we're a family, we all love each other. He mentioned that the thought of the season ending with the group was terrifying. And like he felt like the backs were against their wall, and they they just played better because they knew that if they mess up, it's all over kind of thing. And so I thought that was great. Also, apparently, um, before the game, Patrice Bergeron delivered a speech. Both Jake DeBrusque and McAvoy mentioned. Uh, DeBrusque said that it made us all want to run through a wall. So now I want to hear what Bergeron had to say because he's usually like the quiet leader type. Um, but I, I want to hear what Bergeron had to say before the game to make to make uh, these players motivated to uh, to run through a wall. Um, Guaranteed, he probably said a few f bombs. Yeah, like, he might have. I I would. Yeah. Like the guy that doesn't swear and then you, you yeah. hear him swearing, just like whoa. What it's like all right, all right, let's go. Uh, uh, that's a good point. Maybe he did. I don't know. <laughs> I I always get the sense that like Bergeron isn't that much of a speech guy. But I, so maybe that was the effect. It's like, okay, if he's making this big of a speech, you know, it's got to be motivating. You know, it's like something like that. But I don't know. Um, anyways, uh, other things we mentioned the. Uh, all right, let's. I just want to make sure we have everything covered. Okay, Tuka was phenomenal. This was a Tuka Rask game. Um, mm -hmm. By the way, if you, if anyone hates Tuka Rask, you're an idiot. I, I do not respect you as a human being. Well, I mean, I mean, I respect you as a human being, but I don't respect you as a hockey fan. Because um, uh, this is like anyone, like I, this is including Michael Felger. If you, like, 
even if the Blues win in Game 7, you cannot blame this series on Tukaras. He's been by far the Bruins' best player. Uh, he had 28 saves last night. Um, uh, and one of them went in and it was it was like you know it made sense that that one it was nothing that Tuka could have done for that goal there. It's just like you know Tuka Rask is amazing. I there's not not enough nice things I can say about Tuka Rask. He's just he's my right. He's like a I don't know. He's the he's the best. So um, um, yeah, I just I just wanted to uh, give a proper shout out to Tuka Rask. You've been amazing. I, I hope that even if the Blues win, that he still, that Tuka Rask gets the Conn Smythe, but I I have a feeling that, um, I guess that brings us to our next discussion here, is who's going to get the Conn Smythe if the Bruins win, who's going to get the Conn Smythe if the Blues win. Um, so if the Bruins win, Tuka Rask hands down. There's no one really close. I guess you could say Krug, but um, there's no one really close for, for the con smite there but if the blues win i think it's uh definitely ryan o'reilly he's he stepped up his game everyone's been paying attention to him too um as i mentioned he had like three goals in three straight games um he's been he's been phenomenal he's been a very big impact to the blues this blues team like tarasenko hasn't even been involved at all um and you know you mentioned Braden shen hasn't been involved at all but uh ryan o'reilly's been phenomenal too so I, I would give it to uh, Ryan O'Reilly if the Blues win. Yeah, I read a stat somewhere that said uh, O'Reilly had like one goal in his last 15, 16, 17 games yeah. before game two, and he's got like four of his seven playoff goals in the Stanley Cup Finals alone, and all of those have come in uh, games four, five, and six. Um, he's played a very pivotal role on this Blues team uh, since going pointless in game one. He's recorded a point in every single game in this series since. Um, you can say what you want about Bennington and yeah, uh, Pareko have been logging minutes, but O'Reilly is probably going to win the Conn Smythe if the Blues win. Um, and Tuka Rask hands down if the Bruins win. Yeah. Um, but Game 7 as a whole, what I think is going to happen, it's going to be one of those one-goal game twists and turns at every direction and it will come down to the final play in the dying seconds. It's going to be that close. And I think it's going to remind me a lot of uh, what happened in Game 7 of Canucks Rangers in 94 at MSG. And I remember in the documentary about that championship team from New York and what Howie Rose, the radio broadcaster, said, he kept putting his head down, expecting time to have gone off, and the clock hadn't even moved for like 10 seconds. And it was at that point where he said, okay, this is how it's going to be. If they're really going to do it, every single tortuous feeling is going to be squeezed out of every single New York Rangers fan in this building before it finally happens. I think that's what's going to happen to the Blues. They've yeah. come too far to let this opportunity go to waste. This is their time. This is their year. This is what every single Blues fan has been waiting for. I think the score is going to be three to two. It's not going to be easy to watch, but I think St. Louis is going to get it done. Okay. Well, I, I, you know, it, I, I was going back and forth before Game Six on if the Blues were going to get it done or if the Bruins were going to get it done. I felt like if the Blues were going to win the series, they, like, they're going to win it. They had to win Game Six. They had to win it in six. There's no way that they would be able to win in seven. 
So having said that, so I feel like the Bruins are going to win. However, having said all that, I I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't like plan the parade right now. So uh, so I, I could see the Blues winning game seven, but I feel like the Bruins have the momentum right now mm-hmm. just because of game, what happened in game six. Um, I just think the, the Bruins just have to focus on their game. Worry about the, like, you know, don't worry about the refs interfering um, and and just play their game because um, that's how it's gotten that far um, and all that stuff. But, um, so, yeah, I, I think the Bruins are going to win um, and and they're going to play for David Ortiz. There, there's that as well. Um, yeah. Rapid fire. Uh, Skinner re-signs with the um, Jeff Skinner. He re-signs with the Buffalo Sabres. Um, he has, he's making $9 million for eight years. Um, he had a career year, 40 goals. Um, I think he had like 20 assists, is that right? Um, something like that. Um, but uh, he's been, uh, he was very, he was helped a lot by uh, being on Jack Eichel's line. Um, this is a little bit much, I would say, but at the same time, um, only because like, you know, this is the first 40 goal season that Jeff Skinner has had in his career. Um, even though he, he came close two years ago, uh, where he had 37 goals and then he had 33 goals early on in his, uh, career. But, you know, it's tough to see if he, if he's going to be able to sustain this. But at the same time, it's like, you know, this is a line mate for Jack Eichel. Um, and this is, uh, you know, they have good chemistry together. So it's something that you want to keep together, even if it is a little bit much. Um, it may hurt them in the end of things if he doesn't follow through. Like if this is this season was all an aberration. But um, but at the moment, I think it, it makes sense to at least sign him. Um, to a to a long term contract. So uh, before we we go to the pros and cons of this, and I'll go over them uh, more in depth. But uh, he he uh, wrote a letter to the Sabers fans and the process of resigning in Buffalo, and um, he described it as a series of memories that added up over time. And he never truly understood what the Sabers meant to Buffalo until he started playing for the team last year. Um, the fans going into the All-Star game or the daily interactions with people away from the rink. And um, he, he said there was a lot of priorities that he needed to weigh. He wanted to be in a place where he believed the team would be competitive. And he also thought about his family and, and what they thought. And over time, the Sabres checked all those boxes. And while he admitted that the team didn't reach the goals they set out last season, um, he said, coming into a new locker room, coming into a new community, a new organization, all the adjustments felt positive. So the way he kind of fell, felt at home with the Sabres after just one year, that definitely says a lot about the organization. When you can get a guy like Jeff Skinner, who you thought, oh, this guy's probably going to walk, who wants to play in Buffalo? When you have a guy that wants to commit eight years, that obviously says a lot about the Sabres and how things might be different, right? Yeah. Like, that definitely gives it a street cred, right? Right. That's true. So, 
I, I think in that sense, that's why this deal is important. But let's go to the pros and cons. So here's what Skinner does. He's tied for 13th in total goals scored since his rookie season. He ranks fifth with 191 goals scored at even strength. Never really been on a team that can quarterback a good power play like Carolina and, and Buffalo. Like, their offenses are, are, they don't really stick at you. They don't really stick out at you. So the fact that he's able to do a lot of his damage at even strength, that's definitely good. Um, and, and they showed signs last year that they could be a good team. But after that 10-game win streak in November, they only won 16 of their remaining 57 games. So, like, you, you take a look at, at the fact that he's a top 20 NHL goal scorer since his first campaign, how he's top five in even strength goals top three and even strength goals since the start of the 2016-17 season with 72 and on that list of even strength scores Patrick Kane is on there he's logged over 4,000 minutes so is McDavid again over 4,000 minutes Matthews is on there Kucherov's on there Tavares is on there and Patty Kane has fewer goals at even strength than Jeff Skinner does so it goes without saying that Jeff Skinner has been pretty good considering the teams that he's played on but you also take into account that this past season was a career year for the 27 year old like only 13 players last year this past year scored 40 goals he got precisely that new career high 268 shots on goal put him in the top 15 ranked 12th amongst left wingers and average ice time per game for a buffalo team that didn't win a lot he had seven game winning goals putting him in the top 15 so the idea of him being on Jack Eichel's line for the foreseeable future, maybe uh, if you're Buffalo, <clears throat> you're hoping that the success continues to roll. But even with his monster 40-goal season, that's the only time he said 40 goals in his career. Four of his nine seasons, he's gotten at least 30, which is pretty good. But the thing about his point production when you look at the fact that he is going to be making nine million per year with a full no move throughout that contract it's a no move from year one straight to year eight in the first 10 seasons he's getting 10 million per year in order for that to be worth it i think he needs to average 40 goals and 90 points so that's that's the danger that the Sabres are getting into when you look at what he's been able to do consistently. Yep. You're, you're not sure if you're going to get the 40-goal Jeff Skinner every year. You know you're going to get the shots on goal. Like when he got 18 goals with Carolina in 2014-15, he had 235 shots on goal. So he's still getting a lot of shots on goal. But now it becomes a factor of, okay, you have Jeff Skinner now. You have Jack Eichel making almost a combined $20 million per year for the foreseeable future. Outside of that, where are you going to find your offense? And that's where I kind of get a little bit concerned about the Sabres because you look at, you look at teams like Edmonton, you look at teams like Dallas, you look at teams like Toronto that constantly rely on offense from two or three sources only and then just hope everyone else picks it up and i guess charles 
a bit of a bad example because <coughs> they kind of they kind of have more offense outside of Matthews, outside of um, Mitch Marner, outside of guys like John Tavares. But guys like Radulov, Sagan, and Ben in Dallas like are so heavily relied upon. Guys like Dreisaitl and McDavid are so heavily relied upon in Edmonton. They almost have to take the lead and really drive that offense. And with, with a guy like Jeff Skinner putting him on that kind of pressure, like they're, they're really going to have to find ways to get offense outside of that. And I've heard them kicking the tires on guys like Jason Zucker. Okay. Well, I'm not even sure if he's a consistent 30 goal scorer. Yeah. Like he was a couple of years ago. Like Minnesota just signed him last year to a long-term contract and they're already thinking of trading the guy after not even a full season. So right. it, it's, it's just the fact that the Sabres are kind of committing so much money to this one guy and they're hoping that this one guy can give them so many things, but you're not sure because he hasn't done that. He hasn't gone over 70 points. Even he hasn't even reached 70 points in a full season. Yeah. So that's what kind of concerns me. I will say the real winners of this Jeff Skinner signing is Jeff Skinner in his camp because they knew full well in a year where you have Matt Duchesne on the open market, in a year where you have Artemi Panarin on the open market, if they want to get offense at a reduced price, everyone's coming to you. Yeah. So at that point, you say, okay, you want me that bad? Here's what's going to cost. Yeah, and the Sabers get nine million per year. He took advantage of being the cheapest guy on the market, and he got what he needed. He got what he wanted. He got nine million per year. Yeah, I don't know if he, I mean like yeah, he would he would have made uh, less than what Duchesne gets or what uh, Panarin gets if he was on the open market. But um, you know, at the same time, like it, it's one of those things that like. I think, like, let's go back to this in a couple years um, and see how it goes because I, I, I just want, like, he he does definitely have some chemistry with Jack Eichel, and I think that's the main reason why the Sabres were, did this in the first place was because, like, you know, Jack Eichel was the assist guy, Skinner is their goal scorer. So, I mean... In a way that, and it's not like Skinner is that terribly that old. Uh, he's he's 27 years old, you know, so he's not gonna, um, you know, he has a couple years left where he can be in his prime. I mean, yeah, I guess the fact that he like this is his first 40 goal season. Um, this is his also like it seems like you know if he doesn't get his shots in, he's not um, he's kind of useless. Um, you know, if he doesn't score then he's kind of useless but um at the same time it's like he's proven in his career that he can score goals he's one of the you know best goal scorers in the league um in that sense so um it's it i i i think it is a little bit much i agree with you but at the same time like i could see this working out for the sabers like i don't think it's as bad as you're making it out to be yeah it's i'm not even saying it's that bad of a signing i'm just i'm just saying more it's a hundred percent win for jeff skinner 50 50 chance it blows up in buffalo's face yeah because they're getting a lot of money to two guys on their roster true and we've kind of seen how bad that is for edmonton if they can't build around those talents 
the, the, yeah, the thing also with, with this deal is I think if Buffalo wants to contend, they kind of had to sign Jeff Skinner because when you look at how strong the Atlantic is with Tampa and Boston being up on another level and Toronto being expected to be above Buffalo as well and the emergence of maybe Florida in the offseason too, right. in order for the Steelers to hang, they have to have Jeff Skinner on their roster. True, true. So I, I think almost, I think they almost kind of felt pressured like they had to get this done as well. So yeah, that's fair. I mean, like I don't think there were any rumors that Skinner wasn't going to be on the Sabers. Like it seemed like all year, like they were like, okay, Skinner is probably gonna stay in Buffalo. Like we were just like I didn't even consider him as a free agent because I was just thinking like, oh right, Skinner is probably gonna stay there because he's like a forty goal scorer. He fits in with them um, and all that stuff. So, it, I mean, yeah. you know. The, like, the fact that it's a no-move clause coupled yeah. with that AAV, that makes it tough because if things True. do go south and you have to trade yeah, then they're in well, trouble. it's going to be awfully hard to move him and get good value. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think, like, in a couple of years, this may look very bad. But in the next couple of years, I don't think it's, it's going to be that bad. It just all depends on if, like, like, Sam Reinhardt is going to be an RFA next year. Casey Middlestead's also going to be an RFA. Um, those are going to be other players in their core. Like, Rasmus Dallin as well, of course. Uh, he's going to be an RFA. So these are, all, like, those players that are in their core that they should sign are all RFAs, which they can more or less be, uh, like, give them team-friendly contracts to. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's and that's one thing too that kind of helped Buffalo's cause is that when you look at the amount of term beyond next year, the only defensemen that are committed to the team beyond next year are Riskalainen and Dowling. Yeah. You have Hutton with two more years on his contract. You have Allmark that needs a new contract right now in goal, and and then you look at the three players with longer term beyond the next two years. It's Skinner, it's Eichel, it's Ocposo, and that's it. Yeah, I was so, about to say that, yeah. Have a lot oh, and Rasmus Ristolainen. There's yeah, four. So like, yeah, so, like, you, you, you have... It's not like you're, you've already got a lot of long-term contracts and very little to build around. Like, outside yeah. of those three forwards I just mentioned, outside of Ristolainen and Dalin, uh, you, you have a lot of time to decide, okay... This guy fit? No. Okay, we'll get value for him. This guy fit? Yeah. Okay, let's keep him. Right. So they they have room to work around their roster and determine who is right for this team moving forward. It's not like they have a couple of other contracts that are longer than three years. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, so that's that, right. That, that, that does help Buffalo in that sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's get to the next rapid fire item. Uh, Kevin Hayes is traded to the Philadelphia Flyers for a 2019 fifth round pick. We should mention that this fifth round pick is not is uh is not doesn't have any conditions on it. So like Kevin Hayes could sign, it doesn't matter. Could not sign, it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, so he's going to the Flyers. Um, this is uh, Elaine Vigneault is the coach there, which Kevin Hayes has had experience with him there. Uh, he's not, he's not re-signed yet, um, but I guess the, the Flyers made this trade because they felt like they had a good shot at, get, at signing him before 
July 1st. Um, I feel like this is one of those things where it's like a smart trade if they can re-sign him before July 1st. It's not, it's not a smart trade for the Flyers if they can't, because then it's like, um, you know, then they, uh, then they can't do that. Um, it's, it's smart for the Jets either way, because it's like, I guess they assume that he, he's not going to sign with, um, with them either way. So they at least get something back for him, uh, even if it's a fifth round pick. Um, but, um, if, if, if Kevin Hayes is re-signed by the Flyers, I mean, he would help their team a lot, I feel like, because he'd be their, you know, their second center, a second line center, um, and kind of like stabilize the, the whole thing. Um, I will say though, as like, I, I just remember that when he was on the Rangers, um, with Vigneault, like Vigneault would like deploy him defensively. Um, but like, like when Vigneault left, Kevin Hayes had a, like a breakout year. So I don't know if like, if maybe like they don't get along, but I guess, um, the Flyers wouldn't have made this trade if, if Kevin Hayes didn't get along with Vigneault. So I don't know. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. Maybe I'm just speculating too much here, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, this is interesting because, you know, you you hear a lot of the guys on the trade bait board, and we're going to talk a lot about them in a couple of weeks. Um, But out of all of those names that have been circulating on Twitter that, oh, you know, this guy is on the market, you know, this guy could get moved. Kevin Hayes just out of the blue gets traded in the middle of game four. Oh, yeah, yeah. uh, His rights anyway to Winnipeg. Like, no, we weren't even talking about this. Right. Um, A couple of things to note. So the Flyers, like you said, they have until July 1st to sign Hayes to a new deal. The max they can sign him is seven years, not eight. Um, so it, uh, the max it has to be seven. Uh, what, Wait, what why, that doesn't make sense. Isn't it like if you have the rights before July 1st, isn't that... Okay, well, maybe. But uh, I, I thought I read somewhere was in a tweet that it was seven You may be right, then. It wouldn't need a max, but anyway. You may be right, because I think it's... I think it was because af- it happened after the trade deadline. If it happened before the oh. trade deadline, then they could still sign him to an eight-year. Okay. Uh, I guess now that the deadline's passed, it has to be seven years is the max. But okay, anyway. that, that sounds um, right then. Okay. You mentioned uh, the Hayes being a two-way center thing. Uh, Sean Couture is actually a pretty good two-way center. True. So the fact they would have two quality two-way centers, that's a solid depth move for them. Right, and suck him and all they give up as a fifth that's a smart move by Chuck but Fletcher you, I feel like Kevin Hayes doesn't want to be like a third line center um yeah on a team so yeah, that's why you know so I don't know if he would necessarily want to do that yeah, true, and and the Flyers, to be honest, they have a lot of talent on um, on forwards as well. They have a lot true. of young talent there, so you would probably be set up with some pretty good line mates too. Um, yep. True. I, it, I guess it shows that they feel pretty confident they can sign him, and I believe he's actually going to be visiting Philly this week to see what their vision is. Um, what it does interest me is that a few days before this trade was made, Chuck Fletcher, the GM, was uh, was saying that the Flyers are going to be aggressive this offseason. So it'll be interesting what they do come July 1st. I've heard uh, Shane Gostaspare's name on the trade bait Twitter chat. Uh, thanks to Ivan Provorov's um, continued rise in play. Uh, maybe guys like Konechny and Patrick join him in that regard. 
I also saw some Twitter chat about the 11th pick and if they use that as bait to get some good assets. So um, look for the Flyers to be doing a lot of things uh, come the start of July. I'm interested to see what they do. Yeah, um, I'll be, yeah, I have a, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I, I think there's something weird is going on with this trade that I feel like he's not going to sign with the Flyers, but I don't know. We'll see. I, I guess I can't be surprised if he does end up signing with them, but um, I don't know. Something like I, I'm not like there's something weird that it's like it's already like he's been he was traded last week and he's still not signed. There's something going on. I don't know. But I mean, I guess maybe that's just how things are. I don't know. Um, anyways, the, uh, Charlotte Checkers win the AHL Cup, or the Calder Cup as it's called. Um, this is a, you know, this is a big win for the, the Hurricanes, of course. Um, they, um, Jake Bean was their main defenseman. I'm just looking at their roster quickly. Um, Andrew Puturlowski, um, he had... 23 points in 18 games in the playoffs. Um, that's pretty good. And Morgan Geeky, um, which is a sick name, uh, he had 18 points in 19 games. Um, so those are the two highest scoring uh, players on that team. Um, so yeah, congrats to the Charlotte Checkers and the Carolina Hurricanes organization. Yeah, to, to have uh, two organizations, the AHL and the NHL, uh, to go to the final four in the respective yep. playoffs, and it's true. that that definitely, may, may, I don't know if it definitely says that uh, Carolina's run wasn't a fluke, but it definitely is encouraging when uh, you have guys in the minor league system that are also winning. Uh, particularly Alex Nedeljkovic, who had uh, 34 wins in the regular season, uh, 9.16 save percentage in both the regular season and playoffs. Um, they finished the regular season with 110 points. The only team in the AHL to record 50 or more victories as well. Um, Podoreski, by the way, was named uh, MVP of the playoffs. He had 70 points in the regular season, 12 playoff goals as well. Uh, Geeky, you're right, was pretty impressive as well. Um, so it, it, it's definitely a good sign uh, for Carolina that they're trending in the right direction. What's also interesting is the team they faced uh, in the Chicago Wolves is the affiliate of the Vegas Golden Knights, who we all know made the cup finals all last right. year. So guys like Cody Glass, guys like Nick Haig also got to experience the winning this year. So uh, another step forward for the Golden Knights organization who didn't make it to the playoffs this far, but they're establishing that winning culture that's starting to get them noticed. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's go to the Bruins Sens. I, I will be quick because we just have um, a couple of things um, and yeah. you know I already talked about it. Um, in the in the main topic here uh quickly it kind of flew under the radar for obvious reasons but uh the bruins sign uh samuel asselin um i think that's how you pronounce his name um i i hear i i believe the french pronunciation is asselin asselin okay that's cool anyways he was the leading goal scorer in the qmjhl he played for the halifax mooseheads um he was the assistant captain there he had 86 points in 68 games. Um, I think he just signed a minor league contract. He's 20 years old. He's a center. Um, I'm, I look excited for this kid. Um, he's only 5'10". That's the only, like, you know, negative about him. And I assume that's why he wasn't drafted. But um, 
it's you know i feel like the bruins never sign like uh people like this where it's like uh like undrafted players like this so um it kind of flew under the radar but um i'm glad that he we were able to uh sign someone like that um also uh just we're going uh cross sports here but um uh i'm in uh you know, David Ortiz was shot in the Dominican Republic. It, um, it looks like he's, uh, he's in stable condition and he's going to Boston, um, for more, uh, stuff, but, um, you know, our thoughts and prayers are to him to get better. I, I, I was like losing my mind cause this hap this new story happened in the middle of game six. And I was just like, I can't, like, have the Bruins lose and David Ortiz, like, die at the same time. Um, so, um, I was, it, it added to the pressure uh, last night, for sure. But um, I'm, I'm glad that he's, he's, uh, he's better. Um, hopefully, there isn't, like, a situation where, uh, you know, something happens um, during surgery or anything like that. But... Um, it's good for him. Also, I uh, I just looked here that Tuka Rass tweeted something 30 minutes ago saying that, glad to hear you're in stable condition, David Ortiz, wishing you a quick recovery. So um, it's good that uh, Tuka Rass was able to tweet something out, um, especially in the middle of a series like this. So um, good to hear. Um, hopefully he's he's okay. We, we wish him uh, the best of health for obvious reasons. Yeah, David Ortiz is one heck of a legend in Boston, and uh, yeah. sending prayers to you, David. Hope you're doing well. Yeah. Um, in regards to that Aslan, that's that's a low risk, high reward signing. Uh, yep. The thing is, uh, 48 of his career, 86 goals in the queue came this year. So he sure. didn't really have those blossoming stats last year. I think that kind of impacted his value. I believe he was also attending uh, Columbus Blue Jackets development camp. Uh, before this, uh, I think a year or so before this was uh, was official. Um, I can't remember if it was 2017 or 2018, but uh, it says on the Q website that he uh, attended a development camp with uh, the Blue Jackets. So he kind of got a bit of NHL notoriety before, but never really amounted to anything until uh, he had a monster year with uh, the Halifax Mooseheads this year. Um, did play um, a bit of a secondary role with the Acadie Bathurst Titan. Yeah. Um, when they won the Memorial Cup last year and um, in, I think, six Memorial Cup games and back-to-back -back Memorial Cups, he got a combined eight goals. So he played a pivotal role uh, for both Acadie Bathurst and for Halifax. Uh, oh, nice. All right. I didn't even know that. I'm glad that he, uh, he at least has some notoriety even yeah. before. It's just that every it took until this year for everything to really fall into place. So yeah. it's, it's a lower high reward gamble, like you said, five ten, not really tall. Probably why he he, he wasn't hired. Standard. Yeah. Uh, taking a look at the Sens and what they did because they did make some news uh, this week. Uh, soon to be fifty three year old Jack Capuano hasn't coached since twenty sixteen seventeen when he was canned halfway through by the Islanders after forty two games. Uh, before he was canceled uh, there, he would coach them to three playoff appearances in a span of four seasons. Um, he actually won 45 or more games in back-to-back -back years. Um, also became the first coach in Islanders history to win a playoff series since the turn of the century. The last time they did that before 
Um, his Islanders beat the Panthers back in 2016, I think. Um, the last time they won a series um, in any round was 92-93, which was quite a while back. Um, what's interesting is that uh, he is taking over the void that Mark Crawford left behind. He's the new associate coach. Um, basically, he's got the head coaching experience that DJ Smith lacks right now. Uh, so if DJ Smith doesn't cut it, most likely this is the guy that's going to be in charge of cleaning up whatever mess is left behind, like Crawford did when Boucher was cut. So that's probably what Jack Capuano is going to be. A nice guy to lean on, provide a bit of advice, and if things go south, jump in and steer the ship until they figure stuff out, which hopefully doesn't happen. Hopefully DJ, hopefully DJ Smith is... Uh, the answer to the Sens prayers. Uh, before I go into the other bit of Sens news, Brett, would you would you want Eric Carlson on your team? If he left your team, would you want him back? Um. Oh, oh you're talking about this uh, Sens yeah, news? Yeah, just in general. If Eric Carlson left the Bruins, and less than a year later, he, he'd be reportedly... Hoping would be reportedly hoping for a competitive offer from your team if he hits free agency. Would you welcome the chance to have him back on your team? Um, yes, I would, but I I already know your answer and uh, and say, but um, I I I I don't think this is gonna happen, um, just because of everything we know of beforehand about mm-hmm. how he feels about uh, Melnick and um. And obviously, the the senators aren't um, aren't really contending at the moment, um, and and all that stuff. Uh, like they're not a good team, um, and and all that stuff. So I don't think this is going to happen. I think this is just uh, um, conjecture, really. So um, I'll I'll expand further, but I just wanted to get your general thoughts. Oh no, it, yeah. it, it, it all depends on situation and. Um, after everything that's happened over the past 12 months, I definitely did not expect to hear anything like this. So the report came out of Don Brennan, who works at Post Media. Uh, reports are that Melinda Carlson, Eric's wife, is homesick. She would, if it was right. her choice, she'd rather be closer to Ottawa. So with that being said, the word is that Eric Carlson is hoping for competitive offers from two specific teams in free agency, those being the Ottawa Senators and... Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that too. Yeah, that's quite the vision. Now, before we go Montreal further, would be interesting, though. But yeah. Yeah. So before we go further in these talks, I should mention he just had groin surgery. He's expected to be ready for October. But when it comes to free agent talks, I would imagine that injuries, recent injuries, are going to be the primary point of concern for whoever signs him to a long-term deal that pays big money. So if Carlson wants either Montreal or Ottawa, I'm thinking. He's probably not getting eight years out of either market because, for one thing, the Habs are going to be paying Weber and Price massive dollars for the foreseeable future, and they are still lacking a true number one center who, by the way, Matthew Shainsville, well, maybe they go after him. The other thing about Montreal is the fans. If they give Carlson what he wants and he doesn't live up to it, I fear they are going to turn on Carlson and his wife Melinda so damn quickly, and it's not going to be an easy place to play for. So... I think being in a place where they feel welcomed is something that's also important given what's happened to them over the past couple of years. The Sharks have definitely made him feel like he's at home. 
but as you know the west coast areas like california areas like vegas arizona are very far away from ottawa so maybe a market like new york is easier to digest there could yeah. be a best of worlds there i don't see the sense getting involved in this and nor should they and I say this as a big fan of Eric Carlson. I have all the time in the world for that guy. But the ship on signing Eric Carlson has sailed in the nation's capital. Because when he left a year ago, not even a year ago, they still had Mark Stone in the fold. They still had Matt Duchesne in the fold. They have neither of those guys now. And they seem content with following the Shabbat and Kachuk train with young guys like Eric Brandstrom, uh, Josh Norris, Alex Formanton, Drake Batherson, Max Lajoie, Logan Brown. They seem committed to the youth movement. And I want them to stay the course. I want them to commit to a direction and the vision they have set forward. Because remember when Matt Duchesne came to Ottawa and they said they were all in, they were all committed to winning? Well, not even a year later, they decide rebuild's probably best for this team. Let's do a rebuild. Right. Like getting a guy like Eric Carlson, are you really actually rebuilding? Like, I mean, he's he's probably going to be a good mentor to a guy like Eric Brandstrom and, and Shabbat, Shabbat and all the young defensemen that are getting thrown into the fire right yeah. now. And it restores a bit of faith and trust between the fan base and Melnick. But at the end of the day, I think it's a major risk you're taking if you're re-signing Carlson. Because at the end of the day, Eric Carlson decided to leave the Sens for a reason. And the Sens decided to make this trade for a reason. And I think it sends a lot of mixed signals if they bring him back. Heck, if they bring him back and it doesn't work out the second time, you look even worse because you have him on a bad deal and it's even tougher to move him for prime value and maybe he's not good or maybe he's not as healthy as he once was. And it just creates more distrust with the fans and the ownership group that's in place. It makes no sense to bring Carlson back as much as I love and respect that guy because it, if these reports are true, it obviously says a lot for of his love towards Ottawa because despite everything that's happened, there's a chance he might be back playing for this team again. Like, you don't see that too many times in the NHL, especially this quickly. But the Sens have to embrace their growing pains. You know, if you get Lafreniere that helps the rebuild a lot go with that stick with the young guys you have now they're your future as much as i love eric carlson he's the past don't let that affect your future do not sign eric carlson that's all i'm saying yeah i mean i don't think it's gonna happen also just it feels like even if this does happen like it would stunt the growth of brandstrom and shabbat which would not yeah. make sense and that's exactly what you want from the Senators right now is you want to see you want to give minutes to Shabbat and Branstrom because those are the players you're going to build your team around and the you know they're the defensemen so you have to like give them playing minutes and that's all they need so if you give a if you sign Carlson um and all that stuff then it, it just doesn't make sense because it's like well we have Eric Carlson and then we also have Shabbat and Brandstrom, it doesn't make sense to me. So also down the road, when it comes to paying those guys, maybe right. you can't give them what they want because Eric Carlson is making ten million a year. Right, that too. So, um, yeah, it wouldn't make sense. Um, it for that just big too. picture doesn't make sense. It would make sense if it was this time last off season. But now so it even, totally makes. Sense. Yeah, that that's true, and it's also it's just like you already know that Carlson and Melnick don't get along, so it wouldn't make yeah. sense in that regard either. It's just like. 
why is this even a report? It just seems like it's a way to get Sens fans' hopes up, even though we all know that this isn't going to happen. So there, there's going to have to be a lot of personal issues that will have to be resolved because I definitely think there are, are issues that need to be yeah. amended before they can even coexist on the same team. Like, I will say, though, like that... I, like I said, this... This decision to leave Ottawa was made for a reason. It was made by both sides, not just one. Okay, I will. So, because he is considering Montreal was also on this report. So, I I have a question for you. If, let's say, Carlson does go to Montreal, or if Toronto can somehow make it work, would you root for him still? I am still a big fan of Eric Carlson, even if he plays for a division rival. Okay. Okay. But I don't think I would buy a Carlson jersey. (laughs) That being said, I don't think I would be that big of a fan, but I would still quietly cheer for him. But uh, it it definitely would hurt, but I think it would hurt more if we brought him back and in two or three years he's gone again. True, true. I I think that would just be an even bigger betrayal. I was just just thinking that might be the worst thing for a Sens fan is if Carlson Uh, goes to like Montreal or Toronto. um, The the thing is, I don't think either could afford to afford Eric Carlson. Yeah, I guess you're right. Toronto definitely can. I think I'm, I, 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 I think think that kind of would give me a bit of comfort. It's just like, you know, you guys, you, you guys are getting one heck of a player, but you're taking on one heck of a contract, and that's probably going to hurt you further. So. I think Montreal could do it, but they would have to like trade Shea Weber. Somehow. They would have to do a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe trade Jeff Petrie as well. That's um, yeah. Petrie or Weber, and but at that know, point, it's just like why, why do that? Yeah. Tradable at that point, I, I think yeah. it'd be a lot tougher to move Weber than Petrie. Yeah, because of his contract and his age. Yeah. Um, and his age. Yeah. But I'm looking here, Petri has a no-movement clause, and Shea Weber does not. Um, yeah, so, so, again, so that... that but, like, at that point, if, if you trade Weber and Petri, it's like, and you get Eric Carlson's like, why do you, why even do it kind of thing, so... And, and that's the thing with, with the Habs, like, they've been dying for a number one center for years. Like, that's where they yeah. really need <laughs> help is, is down sure. the middle. I mean, it would be good consolation for PK Subban because they they do need that hole. But yeah, you're right. It, like they have they have bigger issues if um, instead. So, um, all right, let's. Uh, let, I think that's about it. Uh, let's finish things up. Uh, by the way, I forgot to mention this, but this is the first time in Bruins history that they are hosting a Game Seven in the Stanley Cup Finals, which is kind of a crazy considering that. You know they've they've been a team for so long, almost a hundred mm-hmm. years. So um, yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of crazy. Um, that's about it. I'm Brett Duboff. Oh right, our social media uh, SoundCloud um, is lace em up. Our Facebook is or sorry, our Facebook is lace em up. It's also lace em up. Our you can check us on Spotify, iTunes. Um, under those names, um, our Twitter is Lace Up Podcast. I'm all over the place here. Um, that's it, I think. Um, go Bruins. I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll talk again in episode 176 of the Lace Em Up Podcast.